Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Canesham Street in Cheltenham, right near the old Battle Down Brewery. I'm co-host of the podcast with Aaron Heim of the Mile High City, Matt Bates in Illinois, and Drew Johnson of the King's College in New York City, who I'm pretty sure lives in the Trump Tower, uh, though you'll have to uh, snopes that one. Well, the time has come. We are very pleased to have Erin Heim hosting her very first episode. She'll be on with Paul Bilko, and we're really thrilled to have Erin as part of the team, uh, though... Uh, even though she's one of four, uh, we've already uh, decided that she's she's doubled the quality of what we're doing. So welcome, Aaron, to your first hosting episode. A uh, quick note to you um, that you have, if you haven't already taken the opportunity, that you've got the rare and wonderful opportunity to support the podcast at just 2 or $5 a pound a month. You can go on over to onscript.study forward slash donate and you'll find all the info you need. If you don't have the money to do so, perhaps um, you, know, you could consider borrowing money from your parents or something, or your kids. Um, or, you, or you could uh, pawn your copy of Salvation by Allegiance alone, or um, you know, set up a, a lemonade stand or something. You know, Get creative. Uh, onscript.study forward slash donate. And thank you so much to those of you who support the ongoing work of what we're doing. It really makes a difference. Okay, over to you, Aaron. Sinner, unbeliever, unrighteous. The New Testament documents are full of language for outsiders. But what can the language the early Christians used for them tell us about the early Christian us? In his newest book, Paul Trebilco argues that the New Testament language for outsiders tells us quite a lot about what the early Christians most valued, about how they saw themselves in relation to other groups, about what motivated them, and made them tick. Hello, OnScript listeners. This is Aaron Heim, the newest member of the OnScript hosting team. I'm coming to you from Denver Seminary in Littleton, Colorado, where I'm an assistant professor of New Testament. In Colorado, it is snowy and wintry, but our guest today, Paul Trebilco, is coming to you from Dunedin, New Zealand, where it is hot and summery. We're talking today about Paul's new book entitled Outsider Designations and Boundary Construction in the New Testament published by Cambridge University Press. In the book, Paul explores the outsider designations that the early Christians used in the New Testament, examining a range of terms like outsiders, sinners, Gentiles, and Jews. These terms, Paul argues, can tell us much about the identity and character of of the early Christian movement. They can shed light on the relations between early Christians and outsiders, and they give us a window into the particular theology of the New Testament authors. Paul Trebilco is professor of New Testament at the University of Otago in New Zealand. He studied chemistry at the University of Canterbury and then did a Bachelor's of Divinity at Otago before completing his Ph.D. in New Testament in 1987 at the University of Durham. Paul has published numerous articles and several books, including The Early Christians in Ephesus from Paul to Ignatius, published by Moore Seebeck, Self-Designations and Group Identity in the New Testament, published by Cambridge University Press, 
and his newest book, Outsider Designations and Boundary Construction in the New Testament, also published by Cambridge University Press. Paul, welcome to OnScript. Thanks very much, Erin. It's great to join with you. In full disclosure, I know Paul fairly well because I was fortunate enough to have him as a supervisor when I was a PhD student at the University of Otago. And I can vouch for him. He's a fantastic guy. But since New Zealand is a very long way away, I bet most of our listeners haven't had the chance to meet you. So, Paul, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey into academia? Yeah, thanks, Erin. So I uh, I started, as you said, uh, at university here in New Zealand doing chemistry, which was something I was interested in, but couldn't eventually see my life being in chemistry. So I was really interested in, in scripture. So I started and did a Bachelor of Divinity here at Otago. Uh, and then again, wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, ministry in the church perhaps. But I got the chance to go to Durham uh, to do my PhD under James Dunn, which was a wonderful experience. And uh, as I finished uh, my PhD, a job came up back here at Otago, and I've been here now for <clears throat> 30 years, which is amazing how time flies. Uh, and it's been the most wonderful job, uh, you know, teaching scripture that I love uh, and uh, having time to research and, and so on. So just been fabulous. And how did you get interested in self-designations and now outsider designations? Uh, yeah, so many years ago, I uh, remember talking to uh, actually Steve Friesen at a, at a conference, and we were talking about how Christians, to use the term we use, uh, Christians might have recognized each other as part of the same movement if they had been, let's say, a Pauline person and a Johannine person. If I, I found it helpful to think concretely about early Christians. So if they had met on the street corner in Ephesus, a city I've been interested in, uh, how would they have figured out that they were part of the same movement, even if they sort of identified with a Pauline house church or a Johannine house church? And of course, we would immediately say to someone, oh, I'm a, I'm a Christian. Uh, but of course, Christian is only a couple of times in the New Testament and really only becomes the favoured term in the second century. So it, they would have been searching around for some other language, probably. And the most likely is, is Adelphoi, brothers and sisters. So that would be, and, and they'd also have other language they'd use, probably believers and saints. But each of the sort of strands of early Christians, I think, Pauline, Johannine, perhaps Petrine, and so on, might have had different ways of saying what was really most important to them, but would have understood the other language, what, what the other terms that others within the movement might have uh, wanted to use. So I think they would have been able to figure out pretty quickly when they met on the street corner in Ephesus that they believed in Jesus, that they were part of the same movement. So that was the first book, Self-Designations. And, and part of that originally was going to be uh, how do they think about outsiders? Because thinking about ourselves and thinking about outsiders are two sides to the same coin. We can't really think fully about us until we also think about them, as it were. But then the, that first book grew, and as these things do, I had to put the outsiders into a second book. But again, it, it was uh, you know, having thought about how we think about us, how do we think about them? So, and and it turned out that really nobody had put those things together. Been quite a lot of work done on some of those terms, but it was really interesting to put it all together and see what we might say across the New Testament. So, you've been thinking about this project for quite a few years now. How many years has it been since you first started working on your uh, self-designations book? 
Yeah, so uh, I guess I, I started on that in, in about the early 2000s, 2003, 2004. Although I'd, I'd, in the book I did on Ephesus, I had a chapter on how different groups in Ephesus might have thought about themselves, the Johannine and Pauline strands at that point. So I guess I've been working on this sort of for 20 years almost. Uh, the outsiders thing, I guess I've been working on for about five or six on and off, you know, as one does uh, alongside a few other things and teaching, of course. Of well. course, of course, of course. Yes, I, I benefited from your research on outsiders when I was at Otago, which was now, I suppose, five or six years ago. <laughs> Uh, so our listeners can get a handle on what you mean by outsider designations, I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11, which is a text you identify as having multiple designations. When any of you has a grievance against another, do you dare take it to court before the unrighteous instead of taking it before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels, to say nothing of ordinary matters? If you have ordinary cases, then, do you point judges, uh, as judges, those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to decide between one believer and another, but a believer goes to court against a believer, and before unbelievers at that? In fact, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, and believers at that. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, sodomites, thieves, the greedy, the drunkards, revilers, robbers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is why some of you is this and this is what some of you used to be, but you were washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. What do you mean by outsider designation and boundary? And what outsider designations do you see in this text in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11? Yeah, thanks, Aaron. So um, the the most obvious uh, place to start is with how Paul describes or, or refers to insiders. So we have in, in uh, verse 1, we have... Uh, unrighteous as outsiders, but saints as insiders. And he's clearly talking about all of uh, the Corinthians. Uh, do you not know that the saints, that's that's them? Because uh, um, in verse 3, do you not know that we are to judge angels? So really interesting, saints is a title he uses for all Christians. We, we've perhaps become used to saints being a title for the really special. But Paul uh, believes that all believers can be called holy ones. That's being set apart for God, being sanctified. And actually he ties that in in verse 11, but you were washed, you were sanctified. Same verb there from which we get uh, the holy ones, the saints. So, uh, and also he goes on to talk about um, believers uh, and about uh, Adelphoi, brothers and sisters. So it's interesting that he uh, has a number of, of passages, uh, of titles for ourselves in that one passage. Uh, but he also talks about outsiders. So uh, do you dare in verse 1 to take it to court before the unrighteous? Uh, that's again uh, righteous, unrighteous. Often they're in pairs, or there's a, an antonym, an opposite. Uh, but also he's got uh, unbelievers in in verse six. Uh, 
So uh, where he has um, the the outsiders, and it's interesting. That's the key thing for Paul is pistis faith, and so he also ends up with uh, an, an unfaith, uh, apistoi, the opposite of of believers, uh, and so those who are outside outside the boundary of the group are unbelievers. So, uh, interesting uh, way in which he constructs, thinks of outsiders. Faith is our key thing. Uh, they don't have faith. Of course, these um, outsiders will believe in some things. They will have some form of uh, belief in the gods, or, you know, he's talking in, in Corinth to Greco-Roman people. They will have some sense of of faith, loyalty, belief, but it's not as we understand it, uh, f- because for us, the key thing about uh, faith is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he doesn't have to say unbelievers in the Lord Jesus Christ, because that's a bit of a mouthful, and they have sort of abbreviated language. But yeah, so it's a good example of that insider-outsider um, interplay. And you spend a fair amount of time in the second chapter of your book talking through methodology and you talk about uh, social identity theory and sociolinguistics and uh, the sociology of deviance. Can you give us a bit of background for each of those disciplines and why you think they're so helpful for your project, your topic? Yeah, so the... uh, uh, I find method, uh, particularly methods from other disciplines outside New Testament, to be helpful to raise questions or to give a perspective. So um, some New Testament scholars will be sort of methodologically heavy, where they will be fairly much sort of using a method completely. I, I find it helpful more to raise questions from some of these other methods. So, um, Deviance theory is perhaps the most helpful to to start with. So there's been a lot of thought about how a group um, defines those who are not part of the group. This is from gangs and things like that. And where deviance is not so much sort of an objective thing, but deviance is in the eyes of a particular group of people. So uh, I might... um, be a, a a gang member, and I see everybody else who's not in my group as as a deviant, as an outsider. So those people, of course, in normal society are upright and and so on, um, ordinary people. But for a gang, they're outsiders. So the gang will develop language for that. I've found an interesting example in the literature of where um, jazz musicians would call everybody who wasn't a jazz musician squares. This comes back from actually Chicago in the 1950s. And so they had particular language where jazz musicians and everybody else's squares. And of course, squares is not language anybody else would use of themselves, but it's group language for those who are not us. Uh, they're only squares in, as we define them. So it's a very interesting idea that um, outsiders are outsiders to a particular group, uh, tell you what the group itself thinks is valuable, in this case, jazz music. So that shed lights on the norms and the rules of a group, what it, what it is really keen about. Um, so that's deviance. Um, uh, social dialect, too, um, I found helpful in the way groups develop in language. Uh, abbreviated language uh, and be- believers, unbelievers is one example because you'd expect them to say believers in the Lord Jesus Christ or unbelievers in etc. But it's 
it's abbreviated, it's a social dialect. We know what it means. Uh, we're talking to ourselves about it, about outsiders. We're not um, talking to them. <clears throat> social identity theory is, again, a big area these days. And I guess it's part of that is uh, the way we categorize ourselves and the way we categorize others. And that can lead to what they, social identity theory talks about, stereotyping. So uh, where what is a just perhaps might be one of 10 characteristics of people becomes the particular characteristic because we, we stereotype. Uh, and uh, the way in which a group will, if you like, sort of accentuate what it has in common uh, for group identity purposes. So various methods that for me raise sort of questions and insights uh, rather than being sort of completely prescriptive. But they were very helpful to see what other disciplines said about outsiders. Thanks. And I just I want to say that it's just so fantastic to have your uh, former supervisor refer to himself as both a gang member and a square. I think that just made <laughs> that made my day. <laughs> oh, lovely. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> so you're an academic. Uh, do you find yourself in light of all of this thinking about uh, the in-group designations that academics use for each other and what they might say about us as a group? Uh, yeah, in interesting. I, I mean, I, I don't know if you have this in the States, but we often will say something's just academic, which means that it's irrelevant and insignificant. Uh, um, yeah, well, not really. Uh, um, so I guess it's interesting the way that academics tend to put themselves in little boxes. So, you know, I'm a Johannine scholar or a Pauline scholar, to use labels, a New Testament scholar. So the way we define ourselves over against other people uh, in the discipline, I, I, uh, I couldn't possibly talk about the Old Testament because I'm a New Testament scholar, you know. Um, I guess there's the sense in which uh, we're not... Um, Geeks, thankfully, but geeks is an interesting title. Well, I don't think we're geeks. Um, but, no, you know, you're a gang member. We just established oh, that. I, 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 I'm a gang member, uh, or a square. But so the the labels that we use for um, people that we disagree with are, are really quite interesting. And of course, it's very interesting when it comes to the church as well. Uh, in each of the chapters that you have on on a particular designation, sinners or Gentiles, etc., you um, you first survey the use of the same term in the Septuagint and in other Greek literature. Why is that step so important for understanding how these outsider designations function in the New Testament? So it's it, it, it's very difficult, I think, for a group to create <clears throat> language. Uh, from scratch, as it were. Uh, obviously, the term Christian is interesting because that's a, a, a new term that's developed, comes out of nowhere, although obviously it's it's Christ people. So it's you can see why they developed that, but that's, that's new language. And sometimes a group will innovate uh, and create new language. And, and we do that all the time. You know, we, we, um, I Googled something uh, which would have been incomprehensible in the 1990s, but now we all know what it means to Google, you know, and it's a, a verb and a noun. So we create new language all the time. But often we start with language that is known, uh, and that other people use, and that we then put our own spin on. Um, obviously, 
brothers and sisters or false brothers and sisters is language that's used elsewhere. Uh, Jews would call each other brothers and sisters. Uh, when it comes to outsider terms, um, some of them are uh, from the Septuagint, so we know what where they come from, the unrighteous, the perishing, and so on, uh, godless, um, or ungodly, uh, so there's a range of terms that come that are really prevalent in the Psalms or places like that. There are some terms that have a very low profile in the Septuagint or in Greco-Roman world. Um, unbelievers is the most obvious, where um, it, there are one or two tiny instances where people might talk about somebody being unbelieving or being an unbeliever of some sort um, in both Jewish and Greco-Roman contexts, but it's a really low profile and Jews wouldn't have wandered around saying I'm an unbeliever or they're an unbeliever because it's different things that Jews would have emphasized about Gentiles. So that's language where, yeah, we, we know what it means if, if somebody from the street just hears it, uh, but it's it's slightly strange. Uh, again, a bit like um, uh, you know, the way we, we pick up and create new terms. Well, yeah, we know what that means, but the nuances and its connotations are within the group. So the first place to understand these things is to see how they would have been read in context, and then we can understand creativity, I think, which is quite prevalent in creation of these terms. Let's move on to talking about the a few of the key outsider designations that you discuss in the book, though we don't have time to get to all of them. And we got to save something for people to go buy the book. Uh, let's start with uh, the unbelievers, hoi apsoi. And you say that the designation unbelievers shows up 14 times in Paul and twice in the pastorals and in 10 other places in the rest of the New Testament. And uh, and, and the apostolic followers. So, fathers. So it seems like it's a fairly common way that the New Testament authors refer to outsiders. And you've talked a little bit about believers already, but uh, this chapter is really a counterpart to your chapter on believers in your in your previous book. Can you just say a bit more about why pistis or hoi um, pistoi is such a central designation or a rallying cry for the earlier Christians? Yeah, so uh, I, I guess it's because of pistis for Paul, but also in, in other New Testament texts too, that what we see as really important about ourselves is belief, faith, pistis, or to believe, pistuo, the verb, in, in, in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, believing in the gospel that uh, sums that up. So that that is something that distinguishes uh, early Christians, both from Jews, who who obviously faith was an important thing, but nothing like a sort of high priority uh, because of birth into Judaism, because of uh, ongoing uh, praxis as well as faith. So uh, Jews would, yes, yeah, say pistis is important, but not the key thing about us. Uh, and in the Greco-Roman world, uh, pistis had was again significant but nothing like as uh, important where say the key things about being a worshipper of Artemis was actually going along and sacrificing and doing certain sorts of things. So for for Paul and for others uh, Pistis was a really neat way of summing up the heart of the gospel. What God has done, what does it mean to uh, be um, uh, 
in Christ and so on. It means to believe. So that was um, just a really uh, helpful way of summing up in a word what, what we were. We are the believers. And do you see your work in this book fitting with uh, some of the other recent work that's been done on pistis or the unbelievers? For example, the book by Matt Bates, our illustrious co-host, or if we looked at faith or belief in terms of boundary construction instead of a concept, how do you think it changed the conversation? Yeah, so, I mean, one way of that I found quite interesting was that the uh, when it comes to the, the the believers, it's often the participle, and it's often the the present participle. So we might expect it to be um, the the aorist, which would emphasise the onceness of conversion. I I am a believer in the sense that I once believed, I came to faith. Uh, which is obviously very important, but actually the term that's generally used is is present. The present participle, I am one of the believing ones, which sort of verges into faithfulness. So you have, of course, in English, you have faith and belief as being, having different nuances, but in Greek, they're the same uh, stem. So I think that would emphasize more in our conversations that while initial faith is important, ongoing uh, loyalty, faithfulness is also very important. Uh, and um, the the fact that the label is a present participle is a way of saying this is yes something that began, but it's a, it's a for in us a discipleship journey of ongoing faithfulness. And I think that would that it's a helpful insight when it comes to our discussions about about pistis, because of course the faithfulness of Jesus Christ is his ongoing faithfulness in his, his death and resurrection, but also the ongoing faithfulness of the risen Lord, I think, too. So it would change those discussions, I think, a bit. Let's talk about unbelievers. Unbelievers sound so negative in comparison to what you just said, which was so wonderful and heartwarming about believers. Unbelievers sound so negative. Are the New Testament authors against outsiders when they use terms like unbelievers? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question, and and sinners and the perishing ones, and so on. So, I found myself ending up with a language of of high boundary and low boundary, uh, and a high boundary term is one that is highly distinguishing uh, and and excludes. So, if pistis is our faith, is our key one of our key distinguishing markers, then those who don't have it, we're actually being quite excluding of them. It's a high boundary term. So unbelievers is quite a harsh term, I think. What really matters about us is faith, and they don't have it as we understand it. Um, sinners, perishing ones, the unrighteous, I, I see as quite high boundary terms compared to talking about uh, all people or friends or neighbors or, you know, there are a range of other sort of low boundary terms. So I think early Christians did construct quite high boundaries uh, around their group by terms like unbelievers. But the interesting thing is that those boundaries are, are often permeable. So um, unbelievers in Paul uh, are excluded but because they're not group members, but they can come into worship in 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, they uh, are, are welcome to enter into our, our, our meeting time, and, and they might come to faith there. So they're excluded from group membership, but they're not socially excluded. Uh, and they're certainly not sort of vilified uh, in the... Uh, 
to their face. They're, they're welcome. And uh, uh, Paul will talk about, um, in terms of prophecy and tongues, about sort of other regard, regard for those unbelievers. What, what, how are they reacting? What are they doing? So in your worship services, you should do things that, that are almost loving to the outsider. Uh, so almost the, the sense of, of loving your brother and sister is applied to loving the outsider. So they're excluded, but they're not vilified and they're not rejected. So that's a, I find that a really interesting sort of dialectic between we're quite clear who we are. Uh, we have these important uh, statements about ourselves and outsiders are not part of us, but outsiders are welcome, come in, um, can, can join us, obviously conversion. Uh, but also the, their, their welcome. So that very interesting and quite challenging, I think, for the contemporary church to be clear about who we are, but very open to non-members joining us. Now, sinners is another term that doesn't sound terribly open. It sounds actually kind of shocking to refer to an outsider as a sinner. But then you say a couple of things in the book that I think are worth quoting or worth pointing out, that you say that it's a particularly significant way of stereotyping outsiders, but also that it's the salience of sinners as a term for outsiders was undermined by Jesus and indeed by Paul. Or actually you say that Paul alters the meaning of sinners. So what do you think a term like sinners signifies for the gospel authors and for Paul? So there's a, again, I think it's a really interesting sort of case study uh, and quite helpful for us. So sinners uh, in, in Jesus's ministry are, are the wicked, those who disregard and disobey the law. So they're a particular group of those who uh, might be blatant breakers of the Torah. Uh, those through their trade might be. Obviously, they're connected to tax collectors. Uh, and so on. So they, it's a particular group of people. Uh, and of course, Jesus welcomes the sinners, uh, is a friend of sinners, uh, dines with Levi and so on. So they're sinners, but that, uh, if you like, the the outsiderness of that can be undermined by welcoming them in the group. Uh, he doesn't call everybody sinners. Uh, obviously, they uh, that's one of the labels that just applies to the particularly wicked. Everyone does need to repent, though. So, uh, and he will will talk about that. So, um, but when we come to Paul, Paul universalizes the language of of sinners, all our sinners, uh, and I think he does that because of the cross. Uh, Jesus, if if uh, the plight of humanity was so bad that Jesus needed to die, then we're all in that place of the tax collector. We're all sinners, but. Christ has died to undermine the outsiderness of sinners, and we can all become insiders. So he's not in any sense saying, no, it's fine to be outsiders, they're okay. No, they're not, they're sinners. But the the problem of that is is overcome through Christ's death and resurrection, uh, and they can become insiders. So again, interesting, um, harsh language of outsiders, uh, but the harshness is, is undermined through the cross. I don't think, though, that Paul would necessarily have stood on the street corner and said, you lot are all sinners. You know, I, I, this, what we get in the New Testament is insider discourse about outsiders, not the way they would have addressed outsiders. And because our New Testament is insider books, you know, it's a, a, it's a debatable question as to quite how they would have referred to, how they would have spoken to outsiders themselves. Different question, I think. 
Yeah, that's a really uh, important point that you make uh, a few different times in the book, that we have to be clear that we're talking about um, insider language for outsiders, not how insiders would have spoken to outsiders. That's an important distinction for the for especially those who are using scripture in the church to make. They were not necessarily to use this as a guide for how we interact with people uh, and maybe not, not see this as a clarion call for st- street corner evangelism or hellfire and brimstone preaching. <laughs> so you were just talking about Paul and he he, um, you said that Paul uses sinners, uh, the language of sinners, uh, as outsider language. But in some sense, I hear you saying that Paul is saying that all of us were once outsiders and then um, brought in to be uh, insiders. So is it also a way of of does it become then in a sense insider language, or does it become part of the insider's story? In, in terms of how Paul is using that, that they were once this thing and are no longer this thing. Yeah, so it, it's really interesting uh, in terms of, of Romans 5, where Paul has a range of labels for outsiders, which are uh, all what we once were and are no longer. So in uh, Romans 5, 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, and then verse 8, but God proves his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then the sort of crescendo, verse 10, for if we were enemies, uh, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. So he's sort of saying to uh, Christians, you need to think of your past as weak, ungodly sinners and enemies uh, with a crescendo of, of uh, how terrible this was. The point of the story is that they all of those things have been overcome uh, through the cross. Uh, but if you like, he's getting them to reconstruct their past. Uh, you actually were enemies. You actually were sinners. But the, the, the good news of the gospel is that these things are, are overcome. Uh, interesting that he uses a whole variety of ways of conceiving of outsiders, just as he does of conceiving of insiders a lot of metaphors for salvation uh enemies obviously from friendship uh, sinners which is more of a holiness term um uh, and so on so uh, ungodly uh, they're just as different metaphor fields if you like for salvation there are the same sort of metaphor fields for outsiderness um, let's move on to a slightly more controversial, maybe a pair of slightly more controversial outsider designations, ta-ethne and hoi yudayoi, which uh, in most of their occurrences you translate as the Gentiles and then as the Jews, but you're very careful to be in quotations with the Jews. How did ta-ethne come to be an outsider designation that New Testament authors used when they're writing to Gentile, mostly Gentile audiences in most New Testament documents? So it's it's really interesting to see sort of the process of language learning that goes on behind this. So uh, Taethne Gentiles comes directly from the Septuagint, uh, from the the polarity between Jews and the nations. Uh, the interesting thing about it is that that somebody who lives in Corinth, who's a Gentile, a non-Jew, would not have called themselves a Gentile. Uh, they would have seen themselves as Corinthian. Uh, they might have seen themselves as, as Greek, perhaps. But they, they wouldn't have, before joining the group, have said, oh, okay, I'm a Gentile. So once they become part of the Christian group, they, they, 
they have to learn the Septuaginta language of Jew and Gentile, of members of God's people, Jew, Israel, Hebrew, and so on, uh, and outsider, which is Gentile. And then they learn that we actually were once Gentiles. Uh, oh, okay, I didn't know that. Um, so it's this interesting sort of reconstructing your past, which is a very important thing for early Christians because, uh, of course, the New Testament authors are continually tying back uh, what has been, what's happened in Jesus back to Abraham and back to Adam and Eve, back to the beginnings. It's an old story, uh, even if it's now new. So uh, they've they learned that okay, we were once Gentiles, but we actually are no longer Gentiles because we're no longer outsiders to God's people. So Paul can use this language both of uh, Jew and Gentile. Uh, expect them to learn that they were once Gentile, but they're no longer Gentile in the sense of outsiders. Although a couple of times he can talk about the churches of the Gentiles. Uh, um, interesting. Um, uh, that's we. That sort of slips off our tongue, but actually, that's quite a complicated term. So, they were once Gentiles; they're no longer Gentiles. But I can actually still talk about the churches of the Gentiles uh, because it's a useful term. Uh, and the thing about Christian Gentiles or Gentile Christians is that they don't have to become Jews. So it, again, it's a really interesting and important way of saying uh, the believers are of different ethnicities. There are Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, and he can just simply talk about Christians as Gentiles. So there's three or four different ways of using the one term uh, become clear in context. So if you were a Christian Gentile standing on the street corner in Ephesus, what would you think about your ethnicity then? I, if I hear you right, you're saying, well, they were Gentiles, but they're no longer Gentiles, but neither are they Jews. So what are they? Yeah, so, uh, and it's interesting. So in First Peter and in Matthew, we have Christians being spoken of as a new race, a new people. And of course, you get that in the second century where Christians become a third race. Uh, so the ethnic language is starting to be applied in, in First Peter, which is interesting. So Jew, Gentile, and Christian, uh, or Jew, Gentile, and another group. So they s- start to think of themselves as uh, as an ethnic group. Uh, and there's some very interesting stuff being done about, about ethnicity now. Um, how would they think of themselves? Uh, they uh, I, Again, this is where self-designations come, and I think they'd think of themselves as uh, a, a, a group of brothers and sisters of the saints, of the believers, of uh, um, followers of the way, and so on. Uh, and they would think of them as, I think, transcending uh, ethnicity in the sort of... Uh, biological and social sense of it's we are only one ethnic group so they're a very um, amazing thing about early Christianity that we tend to miss a bit because most of us are Gentiles that actually the the Gentiles were as divided amongst themselves uh, as the Jew Gentile thing so Corinthians and Sicilians and Romans and, and and Phoenicians and you know they're all very much against one another but in Christ they become another group and let's talk a little bit about Hoi Udayo. You, you say that this is, the way that you introduce this, this chapter is, is you're very conscious of how controversial it, it might be to be discussing this. What's the potential danger here in this term? 
Yeah, so uh, it, certainly in John uh, and uh, Bitten Axe, the Jews becomes uh, a term for them, which is strange when taken out of its first century context uh, and has led to anti-Semitism to eventually to the Holocaust, so to vilifying the Jews as uh, the opponents of, of Christ. So it needs to very much go back into its first century context uh, and try and understand why this particular term became a, a, a term for them. You know, so uh, in, in Acts, for example, Paul will go and preach in a synagogue and then in a town square and then the Jews reject him, which is complicated language because he himself is a Jew and many of those who have become Christians are Jews. So, you know, it's a bit like saying, you know, the Americans don't like something. And actually, it's just some Americans. Uh, but that language, I think, is partly reflecting the time when Acts is written, when there is a polarity. Uh, also, it's partly reflecting the fact that for Paul, he would much rather talk about Israel uh, than Jew, because Jew is very tied for Paul to Torah observance, which is something that has been transcended uh, in Christ and made a matter of indifference. So, yeah, it, it's a complicated term, and I think there's a lot going on uh, uh, there. Okay, we're going to do a speed round. Are you ready for a speed round? Yes. Okay. These questions are much more um, fun than, than on topic, so you can just answer them with a word or a sentence or whatever, and um, there's no right or wrong answer. If you could be any animal in the world, what would you be? Uh, I would be a uh, kiwi, I think, isn't that? So we have, we, we, New Zealand has this flightless bird that's iconic. Uh, and so I would be very nationalistic and ethnic on this one. I'd be a kiwi. <laughs> I'm sorry, yes. that's just, sorry. Oh, that's great. Yes. Uh, oh, well, I have never thought about it either. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, was, that was a fantastic answer. What what is the most important book published in biblical studies in the last fifty years? Uh, well, I'm a bit biased. I'd say John Barclay's Paul and the Gift, which I think is is a magnificent book, and and which I've been working on recently, and I think is just absolutely fundamental for Pauline studies and, and for New Testament in general. Plus, you look alike. Ah, uh, well, yeah. And John <laughs> happens to be here in Dunedin at the moment on study leave. So oh, wonderful! Where is somewhere you've always wanted to travel? I, I love wandering around Turkey. Um, so I've done a lot of work on uh, Asia Minor and the ancient world and wandering around Turkey, which I've done a few times, is just the most wonderful place to go in terms of uh, somewhere where the early Christians flourished and where there's lots of archaeology that's just fascinating. Do you read fiction? I do. In one sentence, convince someone to move to New, De New Zealand. Uh, it's a place of great insignificance in the world. Uh, so it's just a lovely place to belong to because you're a threat to nobody and um, most things work reasonably well here. And the coffee's really good. And the coffee's really good, yeah. If you were coming to my house for dinner, which I very much hope you do in the next year, what's one thing you hope that I won't serve you? Uh, broad beans. Do you know broad beans? I do, and I can assure you that you won't get them here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're, they're often... 
tough and dry, but yeah, broad beans. Mountains or ocean? Um, oh, golly, that's really a hard one. Um, ocean, probably. I enjoy swimming. <laughs> but not in the ocean in New Zealand. Yeah, uh, with a wetsuit. <laughs> oh, gosh. What's it's... one thing you wish all your incoming PhD students knew? Uh, Greek, really well. <laughs> And will you sing a song for us right now? No, no, that would that would not not be good. Oh, Mike Bird rapped for us, you know. <laughs> well, thanks. Um, a couple of questions just on the on the rest of the book uh, as we're wrapping up here. Um, you say that I, I'm going to ask you more questions about Paul because I I know more about Paul than anything sure. else because I I love Paul more than any of the other documents. I mean, sorry. <laughs> Uh, you say that the outsider designations in Romans and 1 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians are, um, I'm going to quote you here, part of the wider communicative strategy and the wider project of identity formation of each letter. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so I, in the last two chapters, I try to sort of compare various documents. Uh, it, it's partly because there's this multiplicity of outsider terms. Um, there's just a lot more outsider terms, really, than there are insider terms, which is really interesting. We're, we're sort of trying to experiment with how we think of them. Uh, and, and so it got me thinking about whether it was part of what the author was trying to do in the way they spoke of outsiders. And the, the contrast between 1 Corinthians and Romans, I think, is really interesting, because in 1 Corinthians... The, the Corinthians are too involved in the outside world. There's too much similarity between the Corinthians, uh, Christians, and Corinth. And that's part of all the problems that Paul has. They're visiting prostitutes and they're going to court uh, out with outsiders and so on. So he's, he's trying in that letter, I think, to uh, emphasize the holiness of the church, emphasize the distinctiveness between the outside world and the church. So he has lots of really high boundary construction terms where he's trying to uh, underline to them in what he says, but also in outsider terms, you're, you're, you've got to be different. You're, you've been called saints, now be saints. Be different. In Romans, uh, which has f uh, fewer outsider designations, but particularly is thinking about real outsiders in chapter 12 and 13, uh, it He's he's in a situation that well the Romans are in a situation where they are potentially being harassed by uh, neighbours. There's hostility. There has been the the the, um, the trouble um, uh, of expulsion of Christians and difficulties and so on. Uh, he's trying then to help them to think in more harmonious ways with the outside world. So in a sense, he's trying to sort of lower the boundaries a bit. Uh, so, and it's interesting when you line up the, the different suite of outsider terms to see that that's actually part of the strategy of the letter is how you think about them, which I think is gives us a really interesting entree into, okay, the sort of way we think about outsiders is quite related to the, the context in which the church finds itself, uh, this mission we're in and so on. Yeah, putting you on the spot for just a minute, uh, because you didn't talk about this in the book, but I'd, I'd really like to hear you talk about what the most important implications your research has for the church are, in your opinion. Where, where do we see this on the ground? 
Yeah, so for me, it, it's a couple of things. One is that the sense of strong identity of the church. The, the, in the New Testament, we get time and again the sense of we know who we are and we know who we're not. So that's, a, a, I think, a confidence rooted in the gospel and Christ, what Christ has done for us. We, we, are, we are convinced about who we are uh, and what God has done, we, uh, saints, believers, and so on. And we are convinced that when we're not them, that outsiders are quite different, are quite distinct, and we have quite strong terms for outsiders. So there's that sense of confidence and certainty about who we are. Uh, tied to that, though, is that sense of, uh, of mission, that um, we, we are very concerned about them, uh, and we want to invite them in, and we want them to become part of us because what Christ has done is for the world. Part of that too is that the way we talk about them is quite can be quite strongly related to the situation we're in. So there's no one way of referring to them, uh, and the way we talk about them depends very much on the sort of situation we are. So it's not as if we have to just use one set of language in in situations of persecution and situations of of death, we might talk about outsiders in a quite different way from in a more tolerant society. Uh, so it's it's part of what we need to think about is how we think about and how we refer to them. There's no one New Testament way of doing so. And does it concern you that we seem to be really good at coming up with outsider language for people who by rights might should be insiders, like Presbyterians have very different ways of thinking about themselves and have their set of language than, say, Baptists, than, say, Catholics, than, say, Anglicans? Oh, absolutely. So uh, the, you know, the, the, the key insider designation across the New Testament is Adelphoi, brothers and sisters, 271 times, I think it is. So that, that different strands of the New Testament, uh, those people would have recognized each other as part of the family. So I think no matter what we uh, say about our distinctive beliefs denominationally, we have to see ourselves as brothers and sisters in the one family. Um, and that's that's fundamental, I think, to the New Testament. Yep, we might emphasize some things differently. We might want to talk about the importance of this and not that, but we're all part of the one family. Well, if you're a non-script listener, you maybe know what our, our uh, quintessential question is that we ask each guest toward the end of the interview. And if you're not, uh, I'm, again, putting you on the spot. What is one major concept or assumption in biblical studies that, as we say on OnScript, needs to go the way of the dodo bird, needs to become extinct and just die and get on with it? For me, it's the idea of sort of isolated communities in the New Testament. So the language of, of the Johannine community and the Matthean community and the sort of construct behind that, that we have isolated early Christians who are not talking to one another, uh, I think is just really misguided. Um, I think... So one of the things I've enjoyed is trying to sort of look across the New Testament at a number of things. And it seems to me that what early Christians had in common was much greater than what divided them. And that there's a, they're, they're networked across the ancient world. They share a whole lot of language. So New Testament studies for the past 50 years has emphasized the diversity of early Christianity and the this little pocket and that little pocket. I think we need to, to say that, okay, that there is diversity, but 
the commonality is much greater and the communication across the, the network is really significant. So they, uh, we can genuinely see them as, as one movement with distinctive emphases, but one movement still. And you're sort of an interloper in a whole bunch of different conversations because you've taken such a broad view uh, of the entire New Testament. So people in Petrine studies need to read this book, and people in Pauline studies need to read this book, and people in Johannine studies need to read this book. And I think what you just said, uh, you're talking about um, us thinking more uh, cohesively about the early Christian movement, but perhaps we need to think more cohesively about scholarship, too, uh, because... Because I think that the, we're projecting our little enclaves onto the text, maybe where it's inappropriate if I hear you right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm going to end with a question that I always wanted to ask you when I was your student, uh, but I didn't. So I'm going to ask it now so I can get the recording and listen to it. Uh, your book is dedicated to Jimmy and Meta Dunn, and James Dunn was your supervisor, as you said. Uh, I, I think that makes him my grand supervisor. Is that right? <laughs> Absolutely, yes. So if you had to pick... What do you think is the most important thing that you learned from studying with James Dunn? Uh, so um, it, it's hard to just put one thing, uh, I guess, but Jimmy is very uh, attentive to a good argument. So he's, he, he marshals the evidence uh, magisterially in his case, which is beyond imitation for me. Uh, and he, he's, he's always trying to... Uh, bring a range of material into an argument. And I think he does that just wonderfully well. So that sense of uh, this is not a survey or this is not just looking at things, but actually I have a bigger picture in mind and I'm trying to marshal an argument. I think I think Jimmy's been just wonderful at, at doing that and things that have uh, been really challenging in various ways and, and, and various things that he's put together. So I guess that's one of many legacies that but that's probably the key one and I you know I'm, I'm just enormously grateful to him for all that he's written and for his, his part of that I guess is attention to detail if I'm allowed to a second one you know um, the sort of piecing together an argument by really reading texts closely by putting them in their world and, and so on so that, that's just been magnificent really well, thanks. And thanks so much for joining us today. The book is, again, Outsider Designations and Boundary Construction in the New Testament, published by Cambridge University Press. Thanks so much for being with us, Paul. Well, thanks so much, Erin. It's been a privilege. You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.